This edition contains references to subjects which might cause distress or be upsetting, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to God in the Ordinary, a podcast to help you reveal God to others during your everyday. Special guests share their stories with songwriter and author Sharon Tedford. Today's guest heard the call of God, gave up everything, relocated and spent two decades caring for oppressed orphans. He's now expanding his ministry to reveal God in a way that addresses the cause of children's distress. My guest, YWAM Fortaleza director, Peter Thomas. Well, Peter, your accent is not going to tell people really where you are today. Can you say hello to everyone? Tell us where you live and what organisation you work for, please. Of course, Sharon. I'm English by origin, but I have lived in Brazil for 23 years. And so I'm afraid my strong southern Southampton accent has gone away. I work with Youth of the Mission in Fortaleza in the northeast of Brazil. And I've been here, as I say, for 23 years. And God's blessed me greatly by bringing me to this amazing nation. So that's Youth with a Mission. Lots of people know that as YWAM, right? It's YWAM. I have a funny story to tell about that because when I came to Brazil, I didn't realise what I was really coming to. And so I, I landed in what was called Jocum, J-O-C-U-M. And it took me quite a long time before I realised that I needed to learn to speak Portuguese to realise that J-O-C-U-M is just the translation of YWAM. So there you are, Jocum and YWAM, it's the same thing. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. I hope you didn't embarrass yourself too much. Tell us a bit about the neighbourhood where you live, Pete. Well, we live in a big, huge open field that about six or seven years ago, they decided to divide up into lots. Uh, This particular region of Brazil is subtropical and full of fruit trees, mango trees and cashew nuts and bananas. And they decided to chop all the trees down in this particular field and divide it up into lots and sell them. And we were unbelievably able to buy a lot and build our own house. We were the first house to be built here. Um, There are now five houses. And as you can probably hear in the background, somebody's building a house four doors down. So if you can hear someone banging, that's why. Um, And we're right next door to the YWAM base, the missionary base. Literally, there's a wall separating us from our, I suppose you could call it a compound, where the missionaries live. That's great. Thank you for explaining the noises off. It just makes it very natural. It's normal life. Peter's at home sharing his story with us today. So, Peter, as you know, we love to have our guests share a reflection on Isaiah 61. And I know that you have one ready for us. Could you share that with us, please? Of course, my privilege. I was wearing hand-me-down shoes, jeans, and a red polo shirt. She was wearing brown trousers and a sky-blue button-up blouse. I was 13, she was 5. And as I reflect today, I am sure that Isaiah 61 verse 1 was written for me, for that very day. Isaiah 61 verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. There must be good news for little Zazania. There must be a way of binding up her broken heart and freeing her from what to me was a paralyzing torment. Zazania was an orphan, and those days spent with her in the orphanage where she lived broke my heart. Isaiah 61 talks of restoring, rebuilding, and renewing. Liberty, freedom, and favor. Comfort, consolation, and joy. But I'm not sure this is the vision I've had of the world around me since the days when I was 13. When will all this take place? How does this happen? Will God himself, the chief architect, bind up the brokenhearted? 
Well, didn't he send Jesus for that task? Then Jesus, the engineer on the ground, will he rebuild the ancient ruins? No, there's a team of workers to do that job. Then who are these workers? Well, it's them, those who mourn, the captives, the poor, the desperate. How can that be? How can those who suffer shame and humiliation become oaks of righteousness? Well, they can't, unless someone steps in the gap between God the architect and those who suffer. Jesus showed the way, laid out the blueprint, and showed us how, so that you can stand between God and those who suffer, serving as Jesus served. The oil of joy, the garment of praise, the crown of beauty are in the hands of you. I understood the message and I knew I could respond. The you of the story, it's me and it's you. Righteousness and praise, which belongs to God the Father and Jesus the Son, is to be plowed into the arid land and pruned out of the wounded branches of the nations by me and by you. The seed, which was once broken, captive and imprisoned, will spring up and become oaks of righteousness for God's glory. Thank you, Peter. Clearly your heart for the needy was awakened by this encounter that you had. How did a British boy end up living and ministering in Brazil? How did it happen? I think God has his ways of doing what he wants to. Um, and the story I just told where I talked about the, the little girl called Jasania was a time when I spent a few weeks in Mexico. And ironically, Sharon, I was with your brother. I don't even know if you're going to be able to pick that up in our conversation, but I thought you'd like that piece of information. Anyway, we went to Mexico for a few, a few weeks, and while I was there, my heart was broken for the things that break God's heart. And it sort of nestled deep into my heart over the next 15, 20 years as I went to University of Swansea in Wales and then began my career as a maths and PE teacher and became head of maths at Bournemouth School for Boys. And then through a series of, of events, I ended up really needing to find some answers to my own questions. And so I started traveling a little bit around the world. And the objective was to find a way to open an orphanage so that I could work on behalf of all the Jasanias that I had met in the preceding years. And I, I tried to go back to Mexico. I went to Guatemala. I went to Poland and ended up in Brazil almost by chance. And the funny thing is, I'm a fairly well-educated person, but I came to Brazil having spent a few weeks trying to brush up on my Spanish, only to get here and find out we don't speak Spanish in Brazil. So I had to learn Portuguese quickly, and I think, again, the grace of God, I was able to speak Portuguese within a couple of months of getting here, and so I just think that's grace. That's not really my merit, that's just grace. And I love speaking Portuguese. So that's kind of the, a little bit of the story. It's clear from your story that we can all remember that no matter where we are now, God might call us to do something different. And if he does, he's also going to prepare the way. It sounds like he did that for you, even in your language understanding. Did you have lessons with somebody? In those days, we didn't have Google, of course, so we didn't have our cell phones in our pockets. And I literally had one of those really small dictionaries, you know, the small, it looks like a small brick. And I kept it in my pocket, which is rather, really rather uncomfortable, but it worked because what I would do is I would listen to people speaking and then I would imitate what they said. And then when I got home, I would write down the word that I think I had heard and then try and find it in the dictionary. So it sounds very rudimentary and basic, but that's literally what I did. And I really, I spent a lot of time nodding my head up and down, encouraging people to believe that I was understanding what they were talking about so that they wouldn't stop talking to me. So I, I don't have much of a problem with embarrassment, so I wasn't, I wasn't too ashamed about making stunted efforts of trying to speak. It came fairly easily. I love people. I love talking to people. And, and we stumbled our way into it, and, and now I love it. 
and now you're fluent and married to a Brazilian lady and presumably do you speak Brazilian at home or both Brazilian and English so that your children could learn? We speak Portuguese at home because it's our love language. There you are. <laughs> so yeah, we speak Portuguese at home because that's the way we met. We met speaking Portuguese. The funny thing is that I learned to speak Portuguese in this sort of bizarre fashion very quickly, in the same way that Selma learned to speak English after we got married, even though she never had any lessons either, and we don't even speak English at home. So I speak Portuguese with Selma, and I've always spoken English with my kids, uh, which means they have a great advantage because they've grown up speaking fluently both languages. And again, it's just a great joy to be able to have kids that are fluent in different languages. That's excellent. So, Peter, this is a bit of a difficult question. I mean, the answer might not be straightforward, but how did you know that God was calling you to this? Because there might be people listening today going, well, I think God might be calling me to something different, but how do I know that it's really God? Yeah, I don't think that is an easy answer to give, except that, I, I don't know if you have these experiences, I've certainly been this way all my life, where sometimes the hair on my arm stands on end. Sometimes I get a tingle down my spine. Sometimes I start crying for no reason. Uh, actually, <laughs> kind of like I'm feeling right now, I, I have this mechanism inside me and I think it's God's way of communicating with me about the things that are breaking his heart. And as I think and reflect on things and as I see them with my own eyes, it makes me cry. And I tend to discover that if I, if I follow my heart on the things that make me cry, I tend to find myself in places where I'm useful. So I think that God speaks to us the way he made us. So I'm a very emotional, emotive person. God speaks to me greatly through my emotions and confirms the things that he that he shares with me through my emotions. He confirms through his words. So I love reading the Bible. I love reading it in, in a sense, sort of as an analogy. There are so many stories and parables where God talks about trees and he talks about rivers and mountains uh, and God meets me in those places. So things I see, things I feel, uh, I tend to encounter them in, in the written word of God as well and it tends to act as confirmation. But I think probably the bottom line is when you think you have an idea that maybe God wants you to do something other than what you're doing right now, my strong suggestion is try it because you will be surprised at how God sustains you in the things that he calls you to do, even though you think it doesn't make much sense. Mm, that's really helpful. Just go and try it. And I love that you just said that God speaks to us in the way that he made us. So he might be speaking to somebody who's listening completely differently from how he speaks to you, but he does speak. Thank you. That's really helpful. So, Peter, what was the first expression of ministry to the needy that you did when you arrived in Brazil? Well, as I've spoken a little bit of, my heart has been so touched by children at need or children at risk ever since that primary encounter with Josania in Mexico. And so I've always looked at ways to become involved or to be able to help in some way children who are in great need. So when I found myself, you know, making the step away from the UK and moving as I ended up in Brazil, my objective really was to find kids that suffer and see if I can help. So I tried to apply for some what you would call mainstream jobs with sort of a social work background, that sort of thing. But I wasn't qualified. My qualifications are in engineering and education, not in social work. So God brought me into full-time missions. And the greatest need in, certainly in this part of this continent at that time was kids are on the streets. So I like a challenge and I've always been, I don't know, I, I, the best way to say it is I've always been passionate about the idea of working with teenage boys so many people have such a hard time connecting with teenage boys and, and I don't. I just enjoy spending time in their presence and hanging out with them and, and walking with them. So I just ended up going to the streets uh, where kids were sniffing glue, using marijuana, smoking, stealing to keep themselves alive and find myself not only attracted to the possibility that these kids could be helped, but also find that I'm, I think I'm emotionally and, and maybe even technically equipped to actually know what to do. So I found myself in a situation where I was very much at home. And that's where we started. 
So tell us what you started. Well, really, as I say, back in the early 1990s, there was a, a scene in Rio de Janeiro where the police shot a lot of kids dead on the street in front of a church. And it drew a lot of attention worldwide. And a lot of people stood up to try and say, hey, we need to do something about this situation. So I came sort of in the aftermath of that event. And uh, in, in doing so, when I arrived, what do we do? We just literally, we go out in the evenings from seven, eight, nine o'clock onwards. And we just go to locations where kids live on the streets. And literally, you put yourself in a place where you can get close to them, to talk, to chat, to listen, uh, trying not to buy them anything because it, that tends not to work in any context, but just be there and regularly listen. So we would go once, twice, often more times than that to the same locations on the street in this, in this city, four or five different locations where kids, street kids had a tendency to gather and very often places where lots of tourists are because thieving and, and stealing and, and assaults are easy when there are foreigners around. And we would just hang out, um, just sit and be there regularly until the kids got to know us. And the more they get to know us, the more they trust you. And the more they trust you, the more you can hear them open up about their stories and, and see if you can find a way to help them find a solution to some of the questions they have. And from then we opened a drop-in center and we started to work in some, some communities around the city center, uh, basically going to the places where the kids theoretically lived. We started accompanying a lot of the kids who would be on the streets and then they'd get arrested. They'd go to prison, we'd visit them in prison. And as a result, you, you tend to, well, you build relationships. And the, as you build relationships, you get to a point where you ask a simple question to a kid who's on the streets. Would you like to leave this life on the streets? And very often the kids would say yes. And when they said yes, we took them to our home. <laughs> now you came and live with us. <laughs> oh, that's a big story. <laughs> it seems so simple, and yet I know it really wasn't. And when they were living in your home, I think there was something to do with football. I mean, what could be more ordinary than football? And how does football work as ministry? We call it a farm, the, the place where we set up to bring the kids off the streets. And one of the first things we did on that was build a, a raised football pitch. Why raised? Because during the rainy season, the ground floods, so you have to raise it up a little bit off the ground. And then we, not only with the boys who live with us in the house, but with the kids in the community around we just would invite them every day at four o'clock to come in and play football from four till six, partly to get rid of their frustrations, partly to get rid of my frustrations <laughs> and build relationships. And then as you build relationships, you know, football's an easy thing to use because it's a team-based sport. So there's lots of principles and philosophies that you can, you can bring into team-based sports because people have to work together, walk together, talk together, win and lose together. So there's lots of parallels to life within team sports. And as a result, a team sort of began um, lots of kids involved over the last, I say, probably 15 years. We've had more than 400 teenage boys involved in our, we, I guess you would call it a soccer school, unless you're English, and it's a football school. And teams have been quite successful, but primarily it's just an opportunity to get close to them in something they love doing. So the fact I love doing it too is a bit of an advantage. Yeah, there's a little tiny piece of the story missing here that Peter is football mad. Not just he likes it a little bit, he's soccer mad, you know, depending on which side of the Atlantic you live. So did Selma, your wife, get involved in this football team too, or does she have a different ministry? No, no. Selma's been very gracious and allowed me to have my boy time. So every day I get my time where I'm, I'm involved in the sport with the kids. But no, Selma's ministry is very different. Of course, she loves the kids. The concept of having a father and a mother associated with walking together with broken kids is so extremely important. And as I can imagine, you, you can probably think about that for yourself, the advantage of having a mother and a father present. But it doesn't mean the mother and the father have to do the same jobs. 
But someone's great passion has always been to help people to establish healthy families. It's always been her passion and she's done it in great creative means. She's one of those people who stops on the side of the road and, and sees something that she, she thinks is interesting and she'll pick it up and take it home and shine it up, polish it up, respray it, and then use it to help her decorate weddings. So she's been a wedding planner and decorator for years, and she doesn't accept being paid, which was always an interesting little thing in our little daily walk. She does it for free, she does it for people who have low or no income. And the process we go through is we walk with any couple that decides they want to date and move towards getting married and building a family. We walk with them through every step, and Selma's, she's just a gifted listener. Some people would say counsellor, but I think her primary gift is in listening. And of course, the better you are at listening, the more chance there is that you're going to be able to hear the areas where people need help. So I work specifically with the boys. Selma works very much with uh, the relationships between young men and young women and walking together with couples. And so she's more listening. I'm more dynamic. Yes, as you could say, she's more listening and, and correct and I'm more dynamic and wrong. But <laughs> I think that's just a male-female dynamic right there. <laughs> I'm going to say absolutely nothing right now. Nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> uh, I do want to maybe move to something a little bit more serious just for a second. Uh, I know that it sounds like your story has been fun and wonderful and there's weddings and football games and just a lot of amazing things happening. But the truth is you've actually walked through a lot of tragedy and pain as well, haven't you? And sometimes we don't talk about the difficulties in ministry that actually we all face at different levels and in different ways. Do you think that you would still express your obedience in the same way, knowing all the difficulties that you've been through? Because your obedience to God's calling has led you to some really hard places. I understand the question, but it's hard to know the best way to answer it. I don't think, to be honest, Sharon, if we knew the challenges we would have had to face, I don't think we would have had the capacity to say, yes, we'll do that. So no. But I think that's the grace in, in one sense that God shares with us in that if he was to let you know everything that was coming, I think most of us would just die out of fear. So no, what we've really faced is that of the 27 boys who came to live with us over the years, over the nearly 13 years that we had boys living in our home, of those 27 boys, 21 of them are dead today. Um, most of them are dead through gunshot, having come to live with us. Uh, all but one of the boys who lived with us ran away at some point during their stay, during the years they were with us. The only boy who never ran away today lives in Switzerland, married to a Swiss girl, lives in the, the foot of the Alps in a place called Thun with four kids and he's doing amazingly well. But the others, I'm afraid a lot of them ran away and the, the reason they ran away is because they're after a quick fix. They want some of the pleasure that they experience when they're on the streets. Drugs gives them that, stealing gives them that, adrenaline, an opportunity to live without without guidelines and without laws and without rules and without regulations and without people helping them to grow. Uh, and oftentimes when they run away, they run back to the same circumstances they left. Danielle, for example, ran away and, and he went straight back into armed assault, assaulting buses with guns and went back to his drug abuse and, and drug usage. Unfortunately, the police were waiting for him on one of these days and, and as he got off the bus, having assaulted the bus, he got shot by the police as he got off the bus. So uh, unfortunately, I have 21 stories like that. Well, more actually, 21 just from the boys who live with us, but I've got another whole host of stories of young men who've given up their lives in tragic circumstances. And I'm afraid it's not a part of the story that I even cope telling the story much about because I love the boys as my own sons. And, and today I have very few of them left. So, so yeah, it's a funny part of the story really. You're listening to God in the Ordinary with me, Sharon Tedford, and my guest, Peter Thomas.
I'm so sorry for all of that pain, Peter, and I'm really grateful to you for sharing it so willingly. I know that that can be part of the story for many of us, that following in God's obedience always leads to his plan and to have freedom in Christ, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Your focus for ministry has shifted a bit, hasn't it? Tell us about what you're doing now and why it's shifted to this. Well, I mean, it's a shift. It's a, I suppose it is a very clear shift, but it's a very logical shift. I mean, we worked for so many years, for 15, 16, 17 years, working directly with broken kids, the result of, of tragedy. Um, but the more we worked with the kids, the more we realized that in order to help these kids to reconnect with reality and become healthy human beings again, they had to deal with their past. And if you ask any kid on the streets, and I've done this, I don't know how many hundreds, maybe even thousands of times, ask a kid who lives on the streets, who's made the streets their home, ask them what their dream is, what would you love? If you could fix one thing or if you could have one thing, what would it be? And they all answer the same. They all say, I would love to be back with my family. And when you get to know the families of these kids, you think that's a ridiculous statement for them to make. Why on earth would they want to be back with their family, given that the father raped a five-year-old girl in front of the son and and got stabbed in the head with a bread knife and didn't die and, and got sent to prison for drug trafficking and while he was there had eight kids while he was in prison and his, his oldest daughter is a prostitute and she got pregnant by a tourist and, and the stories go on and on and on and on and you think why would they want to have a family why would that be their first answer I guess think the simplest analogy is if you're a fisherman I know that your family Sharon loves fishing so this is a good story for them if you love fishing and you go to the same spot in the river every week and every time you go to fish you keep pulling dead fish out of the river then you can try and just pull out all the dead fish from the river, which is what we did for so many years. Or you can go back up river and try and find out why they're dying. And that's kind of what we've done. We spent a lot of time trying to take these kids home to rebuild their family relationships, to discover that the destruction was so great that it was almost impossible to see how that could happen. But what we have discovered is that of the boys who have, have seen restoration and, and recovery in their lives, all of them, have been restored to their families. In most cases, to their mother, to their siblings, in some cases, even to their father, in cases where a father is still alive or where their father is known. But it became very clear to us that if we're going to only work with the kids on the street, we're gonna be able to work maybe with another 27. But maybe we can go back up river and start to work with families and help them understand the things that will cause kids to enter into such terrible crises. And maybe there's a way that we can stem the tide. So that's what we do. We, we now work very specifically with, our, let's say, family-based issues. And of course, that's a huge gamut of subject when you talk about what is a family. So families who go through trauma, families who are trying to figure out how to, how to cope with conflict, how to communicate in a healthy manner, how to love their kids without killing their kids or, or without uh, driving so much distance between themselves and their own kids that they end up losing them that way. How do you teach kids how to obey, how to respect in a society today where obedience and respect is no longer valued? So this is what we do. We develop programs, write books, run seminars, teach in schools, travel quite extensively to teach on the subjects that are closest to our hearts. Let's, let's see what we can do to help families remain healthy or find health and find restoration. It's a very exciting project and I love that the concept underneath all of this is restoration because that's a very Isaiah 61 centred concept. So as we listen to your story, ours is probably very different and yet we can all see that we all need to go back up river and see why the fish are dying. How can we, in whatever place we live, invest in families and reveal God in that way? What can we do? 
You know, one of the things that I found most fascinating in these last three or four years as we've really been studying and delving more into this subject is to discover that one of the greatest ways that you can help a family is to actually listen to the family tell their own story. And when people tell their own story, um, like, for example, I'd say, how do you introduce a person who has no idea how much God loves them? How do you introduce them to God? And I've discovered a little secret. If you ask somebody, anyone, even on the street or people that you sort of, you know, casually, If you ask them to tell you about their father, then usually most people have an awful lot to say about their relationship with their dad. And the more they talk about their dad and the more they talk about either their deep love and admiration for their father, which is true and it happens a lot, but most commonly people talk about the frustrations and the the difficulties and the pain that has been caused in the relationship they had with their father when they were growing up. Um, So I think one of the greatest things we can do for each other in whatever context we live in is listen to each other's stories and you'll discover that you're so connected with the people around you when you hear the way they talk about their upbringing and they talk about their relationship with their family, with their parents, with their siblings and how many crazy things happen in our families which are not actually crazy, they're just very normal. Um, And that's our starting point. Uh, Just a lot of time listening to people's stories and finding out that we identify greatly with, with some of the things they carry heavily on their hearts. That's really great advice and very simple for us all to do. Be good listeners. So if we wanted to come and be trained by you, do we need to come to Brazil? Can we do that? Is there a way? You can. There are a number of different ways. And I mean, no one is happy that we had to go through this time with COVID, are we? And we understand that so much suffering took place as a result. But one of the good things that did come out of it was we became far more connected with each other globally because of things like we're doing right now, talking to each other over the internet, using Zoom and using all these online platforms to be able to connect with people in different places. So we run a number of different courses from short-term seminars and, and teaching engagements, even preaching in churches, speaking in conferences and seminars. So we're, we're very willing and able to travel. But we also run residential schools. We run a three-month residential school called Foundations for Family Studies. And we run another school called Advanced Foundations for Family Studies. But we also run these courses online. Primarily, these courses are for people who are working in the same way we are, within within the mission, within the, the institution we work in. But if you're a person who's already engaged, already fascinated by or trying to discover how you can be more relevant, then we always open exceptions for people to be able to participate in these courses. We're running a course which started uh, three weeks ago. It's a 14-month online course, uh, as I say, called Foundations for Family Studies. Um, and uh, we're also full of resources, many resources which we can send to different places around the world, depending on the need. Um, so that's just a brief outlook, a brief way of expressing how we can engage people. I love it when a guest brings us practical ways that we can reveal God to others, and we can do that through your courses. How do we find your courses, though, Peter? Where are they? Well, probably the best place to start is to go to the website. It's called um, ywam-fmi.org. FMI is Family Ministries International, and that has a lot of information on it, both information you can read about and also information about courses that are taking place. And you can uh, you can also get in touch with me directly. Easy to find on Facebook, Peter Thomas. Um, you can find me on Instagram as well. And you can also find us through the local mission that we're attached to, which is YWAM Fortaleza. And of course, you might have to write it in Portuguese if you... If you don't find it with YWAM Fortaleza, you could find it with Jocum Fortaleza, J-O-C-U-M Fortaleza. And then any message that you send on these platforms, they all get back to me at some point. 
That's really helpful. So if you don't know what Peter's saying, YWAM is just an acronym, the letters Y-W-A-M. YWAM, Youth with a Mission. That's the acronym. Now, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, Peter, because I know this makes you uncomfortable. But I do want to say, if people are not in a position to be trained by you, because that's not what the Lord is inviting them to do, but they would like to fund or help you, is there a way for people to partner with you financially in this important ministry as you flourish? Uh, thank you for the gracious way you asked the question, because, yeah, to be honest, it's not an easy subject thinking about how do you fund yourselves. We work, my wife and I, our family, we are what you call faith-based missionaries, so we don't fundraise. We live according to what God gives us, and it's an amazing way of proving the love that God has for you living this way. Uh, and that means that, obviously, finances is a challenge. Um, how can you give? Yeah, we do have a number of different places. We have giving formats in the UK and in the United States, and uh, where you can get that tax rebate questions if, if that's an interesting thing for you. We have bank accounts in the US and in the UK as well. Lloyds Bank in, in England and Bank of America in the United States. And so, yeah, you, you can get in touch with those two organizations if you're interested in helping in any way. And we'd be very grateful, of course. We're actually going to put that in the show notes. There'll be a PDF attachment for you to go and have a look at that if you think that's what the Lord's inviting you to, either to a one-off gift or perhaps to support this every month. Now, Peter, before we go, I need you to tell everybody just briefly that on top of everything else, being a dad to many, many people, as well as your own birth children and a great husband and teaching all of these things, you've also written a book. Just tell us quickly about your book and where we can find it. A lot of the stories that I've lived through in my personal life, I've written down in a book. It's called To Climb a Mountain. You can find it on Amazon. To Climb a Mountain, a very simple phrase. And it's basically about my own personal journey, although it's told in a sense of an analogy. It includes a lot of the kids that I've ministered to are involved in the story. And uh, yeah, if you would like to look it up and buy it, it's pretty cheap. It's the first of a trilogy. So the other two books are in the making, Climbing Higher and Higher Still, are the next two books in the series. Thank you. There's going to be a lot in the show notes today. Go over and find out where to find Peter's 91 Seconds and his book and where you can get training or where you can partner with this lovely couple. So, Peter, I just want to say thank you so very much for joining us today. It's really encouraged me to think about how those who are freed from brokenness and captivity and sickness are actually the seeds who become the oaks of righteousness, who shine for God's glory. Thank you so much for joining us here today on God in the Ordinary. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. God bless you. You've been listening to God in the Ordinary with me, Sharon Tedford, and my guest, Peter Thomas of YWAM Fortaleza. To learn more about YWAM and Pete's work in Brazil, go to wyam.org. For our show notes, go to 61-things.com. This podcast is a Wise Word Radio 61 Things co-production. We pray that you're encouraged to reveal God in your everyday.